Let's turn to the scriptures. We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, please. When you read this, you're going to say, where's the prophecy in this chapter? We're going to see how far we can get this evening and then, God willing, maybe do next week, go further into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Just thinking of what to bring for a study and praying about it and the Lord directed me to this. And I thought I would just bring it out. We're going to look at ecclesiastical prophecies. Ecclesiastical prophecies. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Sounds like COVID there, doesn't it? Verse 6. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Father, take your word as it's been prayed and bless it to our hearts tonight. For Jesus' name's sake we ask it. Amen. So ecclesiastical prophecies in this, before we go any further, I've used it many times. Other people use it. Um, there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. Gospel messages, or even at funerals or whatever, Nothing wrong with that at all. And what I want us to see this is for our individual everyday lives. Of course it is. All the different times that we'll go through. But I want to bring us a little deeper tonight. And I'm trusting you'll uh, stay with me, try and stay concentrated. And I'm going to try and bring this tonight. We're going to look at the background of Solomon who has written this. And not only the background, but this uh, book in general. And then what we're going to do, God willing, is we're going to start looking at some of these. And if we can see it in the Spirit, remember that Christ is the Word. Isn't that right? And He was with God and is God. He is the embodiment of all the Word of the Father. So we see Him here in the Old Testament, prophesied of Him, and even we we'll want to show you in the New. But we also want to show you kingdom message. We might not get there tonight, but we want to show you how God had a plan. And through this, we can see by deciphering and going to other scriptures, what God had planned the whole way through, right through to the Israel kingdom, right through to now, to our modern day today. So first of all, let's look at uh, Solomon and what it says in chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 1 reads like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Notice the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And here we'll find that Solomon is laying out a foundation for us before we go any further into this. It's going to be important because I believe this carries into the New Testament, especially in the life of Paul the Apostle. Because Solomon here, he's, as it were, it seems he's trying to claim or showing or placing his claim on divine right. Divine right. He's a preacher. The word preacher is kohileth. It means one to convey, a master teacher. Of course, Solomon's the man with wisdom, and we're going to look at how, just snapshots at how that went wrong. And he's a, the kohileth, the preacher. And notice here, he's the son of David, showing his lineage now. And at this point in time, he's king in Jerusalem. So notice here, the introduction, 
is akin to these verses. Now you can write them down, or if you can follow me, I've got them written down to save time. And if you can follow me, then that's okay. But for example, as I said, Solomon is as if he's trying to show he's placed in this position as the preacher, not only the preacher of the Kahilath, he's also son of David by divine right, and he's also the king in Jerusalem by divine right. Paul the Apostle, through his epistles, seems to try uh, to give us something similar when others don't. And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, you can either jot them down, read them when you go home. I'll read it out to you, or you can keep up with me if you can. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, listen to how Paul opens up the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. I know that. He's, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Note the word called to be an apostle. He's asserting his divine right, his calling in his life. So he's called to be an apostle, and he's separated unto the gospel. That's Romans 1 and 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Listen to how he opens up the Corinthian letter, the 2 Corinthian letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. By the will of God. So you can see the resemblance here between Solomon, he's the preacher, the son of David, and he's king in Jerusalem. Asserting it from the start, Paul is saying he's an apostle called to be an apostle. He's an apostle by the will of God. And then in Galatians chapter 1, and in verse 1, he's Paul an apostle, and it says, not of men. He's not called by man. It's not by the will of man. So he's apostle not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So here Paul is asserting divine right again. It's not of man I've got this calling. It's not my apostleship is not a man saying, well, now you're apostle. Notice here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 1. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice, by the commandment of God, he says this time. By the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Here again, he's asserting his apostleship is by divine right. Now, when we go, for example, to the little letter to Philemon. Uh, Philemon had a slave who escaped called Onesimus, and he came to Paul. And that's what the letter of Philemon is about. And you'll see the type of Christ through that word. Paul sends him back to Philemon, sends Onesimus the slave back to Philemon with this letter to say, Onesimus has been saved. He's your brother in Christ. Treat him so. He doesn't mention here his divine right at this time. He simply opens it and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's not even, he's coming down to, as it were, the slave level. He's coming right down to the level of this man. For example, he's the only one that does this, James. He writes in James 1 and 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not trying to claim it. Why? Because he was an apostle of the Lamb. In other words, he was with Christ when Christ was on the earth walking in flesh. Peter doesn't do it. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Full stop. That's who I am. An apostle of Jesus Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, he writes, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, he doesn't give any call or any need of it for divine right. Why? Because he walked with Christ. He fellowshiped with Christ. He was there at the time of the cross of Christ. And so all of those things, although Peter had the failures and the falls, let alone all the things that, that he put his big feet into. In other words, he spoke when he shouldn't have spoken. Uh, uh, here he, he has no qualms because he had seen the risen Christ. And here he's now, I'm an apostle. That's it. But why did Paul need to do that? Why did Paul need to assert that? Because I'm going to bring this and show you, why did Solomon possibly need to assert it in the first uh, chapter, first verse of Ecclesiastes. Here's why. 
1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn to it. I'll turn with you. I haven't written it all down because there's a few verses we'll read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. Okay, and let your eye run down to verse 5. This is Paul speaking about the proof of the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, or Cephas, then of the twelve. That's Peter and then the twelve. And then he writes, After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep or some have died. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So they, these people have no problem in saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, note what he writes here in verse 8. At last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Notice what Paul's saying here. Some things why we believe he had to affirm the divine right of his apostleship. Because he wasted the church, the early church, he says, there's one of them. He says, though I doubled up my efforts and I labored more than probably the rest of the apostles. In other words, I'm trying harder to be proven in my calling as an apostle. But here's the main reason why. Verse 8, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. The, the term born out of due time is the word ektruma. Ektruma. And it really is uh, the Greek word for... Um, an early birth, an abortion, or a miscarriage. That's what Paul's, that's how he's feeling. He wasn't with the twelve. He wasn't even along with Matthias when they drew lots for Judah's spot. He was persecuting the church at this point. So now it seems in his letters he's having to claim his divine right because he was found of the Lord on the road to Damascus, as we know. And everyone didn't believe him at the start. He had to go to Arabia for three years. And so when we find this, that Paul seems to be saying here, I have a divine right, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, came to me and spoke to me, and this is the revelation that he's given to me. The breaking of bread, for example. Paul, Paul takes that and he gives us nearly a commentary in 1 Corinthians 11 on it. That's, that's because he had the revelation of Christ. The third heaven, Paul speaks of. He couldn't think. He, he was told things that he, he couldn't even uh, speak about. It was unlawful, he said. And he had all this revelation, yet he realized that he wouldn't be fully accepted at times. They said he was weak and contemptible, that he was, had no bodily presence in some of the places he was preaching. But one thing was he was anointed of the Spirit, and God used him mightily. He wrote almost two-thirds of our New Testament. So Paul is affirming his apostleship through this. Why? Because the word, I am one born out of due time, they look at me as if I'm an abortion. And people look at me as if I'm a miscarried. In other words, one born out of due time. I'm not true or real. So here he seems to be enforcing uh, his divine right. So everybody with me can see that. So when we go back to uh, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes three different things. He's a preacher, one. Two, he's the son of David. And three, he's king in Jerusalem. And all of these are by divine right. Every one of them. So why would he feel the need to do this if this is what's behind it? Solomon, you see, was the son of David with Bathsheba. We all know the story. Bathsheba was uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And even in, in Israelite law, she shouldn't have been with Uriah the Hittite because he was outside of the Israel people. But nevertheless, 
She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and she's bathing on the roof. David spies her. The rest is history. He then, Uriah comes home, and he tries to get Uriah to go and stay with his wife for the night. Go on, stay with your wife, you know, and she's going, and he's going, no, I won't fight whenever the armies of Israel are out there. He, he had more, uh, he had more patriotism than the Israelite. And he wouldn't lie with his wife, so David knew we we're going to get caught. And what happened was, of course, uh, the, he went into the hottest, most part of the battle. David gave the letter to Joab, and Joab had him there, and he was killed there in the battle. David had that blood in his hands. God forgave him, but they had a child, if you remember, and the child died. But then they had another child, and that was Solomon came. Okay, so Solomon being the, 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 the son of Bathsheba, and being the son of David, he's 100% right to claim divine right, but he's about number 10 in the list of children at this point. He wasn't even the firstborn or the second or the third. He was the tenthborn. He had no claim to the throne. And what happened? They all started dying. Nothing to do with Solomon, by the way, but they all started dying in battle and, and different things. And so we find that he's the third king of Israel then. We had uh, Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. One, he was from the wrong tribe. Two, he was chosen by men because he looked apart. And so three, he wasn't God's choice. So Saul, really, if you count him as the first, then you had David, and then Solomon. How does Solomon get into that spot? Okay, so then we look at, at him. He's, he's from the tribe of Judah. Everything is divine, right? And then his name his, his Solomon's name, pardon me, pronounces Shalomo. That's his Hebrew pronunciation, Shalomo. And Shalomo is actually where we get the name, or they are linked to one another, the name Shalom. Shalom means peace. Solomon's name means peace or peaceable. And so Shalom means peace, but it means to be made whole, completely whole. Not just we would say to someone that you want their, you want them to leave you alone for a while, and give them a headpiece or or have peace I was down uh, by the river there was no one there and we just sat there for a while you know had peace this means a peace perfect complete whole made peace so Solomon's name means peaceable or peace and remember these things because I'm going to bring more out possibly tonight maybe next week so will you turn with me to 1 Kings please I don't know whether we'll just jump through this but let's go to 1 Kings I don't watch, there's a lot of reading and I don't want to spend too much time around this. First Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1. Verse 1. Now King David was old and stricken in years and they covered him with clothes but he got no heat. Wherefore a servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin and let her stand before the king and let her cherish him and let her lay let her lie in thy bosom, and my lord the king may get heat. No central heating there. There was your central heating. You got a young woman, and besides, and she cuddles you, you fell asleep when you're old. <laughs> uh, so they so sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. Now, whenever we read on down here, I'm just going to jump across. Verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and, f- and 50 men to run before the chariot. And his father had not displeased him at any time, saying, Why hast thou done so? And he was also a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. Now, notice this son, Adonijah. I sort of looked them up and I thought, I'm going to have to jot these down because my memory isn't just what it used to be. Adonijah uh, really means my Lord is Yah or my Lord is Yahweh or Jehovah. So Adonijah, one of David's sons, he would have been the fourth son of David. So let me give you them down a few sons here. The first was Amnon. Amnon, his mother was called Ahinoam. And the second one was called Chiliab. Don't hear much about him, but he's also sometimes called Daniel, not Daniel as the book, the prophet Daniel now. But he was called Daniel too. Third, he was Absalom. 
And then there was Adonijah, who we've read about. He claims the throne is his because Absalom has died. Absalom was the one who turned on his father, and his father David was fleeing into the mountains from him. So this is the this is the family line. These are all David's sons. And then we had uh, Shabhatia, and it means Yah has judged. And then Etherim, and his mother was called Agla, and his mother's name means heifer. <laughs> My mother's a heifer, hey. Eh? So that's that's what it meant. I don't know, but that's what that's what it means. You'll find those, by the way, in Second Samuel chapter three, verses two to five. Those names. So in First Kings chapter one, verse five, it's Adonijah who claims right to the throne. Adonijah, in this chapter, going into chapters 1 and chapter 2, you'll have to read it when you go home or when you get a chance, you'll find there's what we would call the old guard. And the old guard supported Adonijah. That would have been Joab, who we talked about a minute ago, who took the letter for Uriah the Hittite to go into the hottest most part of the battle. Joab was a general in David's army. And then there was Abiathar, the old priest. And they would have backed him up they were behind as the old guard behind uh, Adonijah. On the other hand, there was Solomon. Now remember, Solomon was from the woman where all the sin and the murder. See, God forgive, but people are a different story, brothers and sisters. We can do the most heinous of things and God forgives, but building a testimony and a witness up again is something different. People might not forgive. And so Solomon must be feeling this because Bathsheba uh, uh, is obviously supporting Solomon, but Solomon has what uh, a guard, if you want, a newer guard, if I can call it like that. And they are Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest. Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest. And it's strange because if you go to the coronation, say of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and the coronations before that, what you'll find is they actually sing about Zadok the priest in it. And they have like prayers of the prophet Nathan and so forth. And they replicate it completely 100% down to the T of what the kings and queens were crowned on in the, in the Bible. In fact, the stone of Schoon is the stone that's under the, the chair throne of Edward I. And it's there, and a king and a queen must be crowned on that stone. It's in Edinburgh Castle at the moment. Alison and I seen it, and I try to get Alison to go in. You go into it's like a keep, it's a big steel door, and when you go in, it's all lit up, and it's dark around the outside, and there's queues all over the place to see this. And there's some of the, the, the Scottish crown. King James, of course, the sixth became King James the first, who was the one who brought us uh, the King James Bible uh, and so on. And there's the crown and there's the, the stone in the middle. And it'll be brought down to Westminster, or pardon me, to uh, Westminster Abbey whenever they go to crown um, whoever's next. I trust it's Christ coming. Anyway, but it's in a big glass case. And we were going up in these queues and I, we got up to the door and you couldn't really see, but it was all lit up. And I said to Alison, get a photograph. I says, I need a photograph of that. And she says, not allowed a photograph. I said, go on, take it, take it. And she's just at the door and she goes, and she hits it, but a big flash came and lit up the whole room. And the security guards were on us like, like Flynn, you know, they just jumped. No photographs. So it was really strict. You're not even allowed to take a photograph of this. It's held in such high esteem. It's held, you're not allowed to take a photograph of it. It's called Jacob's Pillar Stone, believed to be the pillar stone Jacob uh, slapped on. That's the, the, the story behind it. So, so you'll find that this all happens here where, where um, Nathan and, and the prophet Zadok, the priest and all, they're all uh, behind Solomon. So there's David, there's, there would have been, pardon me, Saul, not of the right king line, David and then Solomon. Okay, so he was in the tenth, as I said, of David's sons. And David himself could liken himself to this because David himself was the eighth of Jesse's sons. So he knew what it was like to be in the field and not thought of. So the idea could be that when he's writing something like the book of Ecclesiastes, and even though he's been given the wisdom that God has given him, he writes the words of the preacher. There's the wisdom of it. 
Then he claims divine right, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so again, the kings and queens of the of the United Kingdom as well, of course, they claim the divine right as well. Notice this, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. Just one little line I want you to look at. It says, And Solomon loved the Lord. It's not just beautiful. That's, that's what it's all about. And Solomon loved the Lord. How do we know when a man and woman loves the Lord? Because they keep his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, what do he say? Keep my it's obedience to the word of God. That's loving the Lord. Loving the Lord isn't this airy-fairy stuff you hear an awful lot of. It's not, it's not what you hear in a lot of the charismatic movement, this whole romantic thing. It's not about romance. Romance actually isn't a very good word to use, Shani. I'll talk about that another time. But it's about keeping the Lord's word, keeping God's commandments, and in there, loving one another, you show that you're his disciples. You show that you love the Lord. So 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 23 says these words. So now we're getting more established here. 1 Chronicles 29 verse 23 says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Note that down. So this throne is the throne of the Lord. It's not just another nation's throne. This is the throne of Jehovah, the throne of Yahweh. God's throne on the earth. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. Okay? So there's a background now. We get an idea. Is this why the book of Ecclesiastes is opening up with the, the, if you want, the divine right that Solomon is portraying at the start. So the words of the preacher, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, as he said, preacher is kohileth, it means uh, convener, it means the master teacher, and one who brings all things together in order to give it. And that's what he's saying. So Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2, it says, Vanity of vanities, saith the kohileth, or the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. In verse 2, we have vanity. Look at verse 4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The earth abides. Now, this world is going to change when Christ returns. It will be burnt up, but the earth, different thing from the world of the earth, the earth abides forever. Notice here, the vanity it means vanity of human life. And in verse 4, that's the brevity. The brevity of human life. So in other words, one, the vanity is the emptiness of life. The emptiness of it. And verse 4, the brevity is the shortness of it. Compared to the earth abiding forever. One generation comes and another generation comes after that and another after that. So, in chapter 1, the preacher starts off with vanity and bravery. In chapters 2 to 12, from chapters 2 to 12, we have the preacher's findings. The whole way through, it's about, oh, man can do this, and man can do that, and man can do the other thing. You can seek this and chase it, and you can drink it and eat it, and all this sort of stuff. And at the end of it, he's trying to sum it all up for us. Go to the last chapter, to chapter 12, please. He starts off, and we always quote this, we always hear quoted at youth meetings, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. In other words, while you're young, sir, because he's looking here at what he's done compared to the end of life. Not only the vanity of it, the emptiness of it, but the brevity of it, the shortness of it. And look at verse 12 down at the end of it. Verse, pardon me, chapter 12, verse 13. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let me wrap this up for you. 
Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what he says. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. That's actually fearful when you think about that. That's fearful. Whether it be good or whether it be evil. So, notice here, the book of Ecclesiastes exposes the emptiness of earthly wisdom in hasting after impossible satisfaction. That's what I wrote. I'll read it again. The book of Ecclesiastes exposes the emptiness of earthly wisdom in hastening hastening after impossible satisfaction, whether it's sensual, sexual, industrial, or philosophical. That's what this book is saying. So now we're going to look at chapter 3 for a few moments. We'll maybe take... We'll maybe take one point or so and we'll wrap it up and bring it next week. So chapter 1, chapter 3, pardon me, verse 1. We have God's appointed fixed laws for the well-being of man, okay? Notice what it says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. So to everything. That, that can mean, everything means everything, doesn't it? Okay, so then we're going to look a little closer. We're going to draw into this. Here we have times then. It's the well-being that God sets out in seasons, periods, and it also for Israel, he set it out in their feast days. There were times of the year they were to have their certain feasts. Times of the year. Times of the year they were to bring their certain foods. Times of the year they were to bring their offerings and sacrifices. God set it out not only for the body, but for the well-being of the whole man, the soul. Okay? So what he's saying here is, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Let me look at times here for another time. For example, everything that assails our lives, we can say there's going to be a season that's going to change. It's going to change. So, brother, sister, we can take courage and take heart in that because God will not let it last forever. But notice here, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, I'll read this to you. You can read it later. When our Lord was tempted of the devil in that wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, it says, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. In other words, he would come back again. And when and where did he come back again? Well, of course, he came back again, especially in the person of Judas Iscariot. He entered into Judas, and of course, he came back at the arrest in the garden. He departed that was for a season. And it may well be as well that this gives the idea of the evil spirit of it working through men, the Pharisees, for example, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians. And he's working through these people to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Still works through them to kill his seed, to kill his people. And notice here, he was, he was in season, the Lord Jesus, and then he's out of season. And notice here as well something, the, the, the idea of throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll read it, it says, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, to all things done, under the sun. In other words, we're under the sun. We're in planet Earth, terra firma. And so these things are going to be for terra firma under the sun. Let me give you some times to be filled or be fulfilled. For example, in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, here's some things I just want to jog your memory with. Or if you don't know it, I want to give you it new. I just want to try and draw you out a little bit on this and see, get your mind to think. Luke 21, verse 24, the Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles 
until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So there's going to be seasons here of Gentile power, Gentile rule. What does he mean? Listen, what times? And the thing is, Scripture interprets Scripture. Isn't that right? As I always keep telling you, Scripture interprets Scripture. In Daniel chapter 2, you've heard me speaking about it, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The man with the head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly of brass, the legs of iron, the legs and the, the legs and feet of iron and clay. And they're all different times of the Gentiles. Now, when the southern kingdom of Judah, which we will look in at look at this, God willing, next week, the southern kingdom of Judah later in time, when they when they are taken away captive into Babylon, we read Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, Ezekiel there. You know, you read of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace and the fourth man in the fire. We read of Daniel and the lion's den and so on. And this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that's the head of gold. And coming right through those times, right through until today, the area or the region of what is European Union today. The ten toes of it. There are times. But notice this. Jerusalem was to be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled in Jerusalem. In 604 B.C. If you take the times of God's punishment on the house of Judah. That's the carrying away of the house of Judah into Babylon. That's the finality of this. And when you take that from 604 B.C. How do we get seven times? Leviticus chapter 26. God says, if you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you, and I will chastise or I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. So how do we work out seven times? One time, there's lunar cycles and there's solar cycles, and they come down to fractions. We're not going to go into that because it boggles your mind. Listen, here's a simple way to do it. A circle is 360 degrees. Isn't that right? So that's one time. 360. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, 360s. Seven, 360s is 2,520. 2,520 what? It's 2,520 years. When we go by the scale of prophecy from Numbers 14, look at it, you go home, and Ezekiel chapter 4. The Lord says, I have given a day for a year. A day for a year. So 2,520 years. A day for a year. Okay? So 604. And the numbers get smaller coming towards the year. Well, there is no year zero, but minus one. You add one because there's no naught that year. It goes to one. And it brings you to the year. You continue on with the 2,520. It brings you to the year 1917, just over 100 years ago. General Allenby entered in the Jaffa Gate. And there he went in and liberated Jerusalem from the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Right on the dot. Right when God said that this would happen. That's the, the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled there and then. It's online. I've taught on it quite a few times. But for people who maybe haven't heard it, it might be hard to get your head around that. But God says, Christ says that the Jerusalem shall be thrown down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that's it fulfilled. 2,520 years from them being carried away captive into Babylon till 1917, General Allenby flew a, a plane, or his planes, bi-wing planes over in the First World War, and there wasn't a bomb dropped, there wasn't a shot fired, and Jerusalem was liberated. If you'd like a scripture for that, I'm trying to remember the, the scripture. Just let me get it. And it's in the book of Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah 31 and... Yeah, Isaiah 31 and 5. Isaiah 31 and 5. Listen to what the Lord says. As birds flying, these planes went over. As birds, they weren't birds, but as birds flying. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Exactly 100% as God said. Birds flew over. 
The Turks dropped their weapons. They surrendered to a corporal, two corporals. They couldn't be removed by any of the armies before. They dropped leaflets telling them to, to surrender from the planes. No bombs being dropped, no shots being fired. And in 1917, the place was liberated. And General Allenby went in and had the proclamation of Jerusalem for uh, the mandate of Palestine. So Isaiah 31, verse 5, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending it, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. It was preserved perfectly because there was nothing dropped, no bombs, no shots. Perfect, isn't it? So we find that God has times. Verse 11 of our reading, he says he does all things well. He makes them all things beautiful in his time, in his time. It's his time. And his time is not always what we think our time is. And let me go on a little here. So let's look at time again. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Listen to what is preached to the people of Judea. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What time? Did you ever ask yourself, what time is that fulfilled? Oh, well, that's the time when Jesus was coming. Uh, yes, it is, but is that it? It's just, is it just thrown in there? It's just a time? No, this is the time from Daniel chapter 9. The Lord says that Messiah the Prince will come. And this is it. This is, this is the, uh, the Lord Jesus fulfilling the prophetic utterance from Daniel 9. And so it comes along that the time is fulfilled. It's known as the 70 weeks prophecies of Daniel. So then we see that God has everything. He's told us all before. Scripture will interpret Scripture. So when we read in Ecclesiastes, I'm watching the clock. I'm going to finish soon. Time's flying. Notice this. To everything there's a season, a time to be born, uh, pardon me, a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. A time to be born. We all have that. I preached it the other week as well, in the driving. I was born. In fact, I was born 54 years ago this Friday because of my birthday. Who said I know? You, Kathy? I was born, I know my birth certificate, but I don't know my death date. I'm hoping to make it the, the Friday to get 54. So the thing about this is, is, yep, we can look at that, and that's what it means. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's the sovereign will of God in all of this. But, but, let's look for Christ in all the scriptures. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Again, Daniel chapter 9. This is it. So the times, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. And here we find that there's 26 time twos. A time two, a time two. There's 26 of them. And then there's one God's time. All of them are in God's time shows the sovereignty of God. We begin with the the divine right of the king, the divine right of the preacher, the divine right of the son of David, and now we have the divine one, the sovereignty of God in verse 11. God's time. Now, in Isaiah 9 and 6, we quote it all at Christmas time. It's not really... Christmas thing, but everybody quotes it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. So we, we think of these things that he's coming. So Isaiah's pointed to him, he's coming. Here, when Christ comes, the time, the fullness of time had come. And he'd say, he's come. The angels declared it that he was born in Bethlehem. So unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the government, 
shall be upon his shoulders. That means that it gives the idea he's going to carry, he's going to be the governor of Israel, but he's going to be the governor of the world. So, for example, in Matthew 1 and verse 21, it says, She shall bring forth a son, and I shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. And notice this here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. In verse 7 it says, And she brought forth her son. This is ex- There's a time to be born. So we're looking for Christ in it. We're all born. A time to be born. But we're looking for Christ in it. And it's amazing that here we read of Mary bringing forth her firstborn son. But it's amazing that God can work out the prophetic word and timing along with the days of an expectant mother. Think about that. The whole of redemption, salvation, everything from creation was all worked out to this time. An expectant, one young virgin girl, an expectant mother giving birth to the one who would become. The one who would be born. Not only was he able to work out the prophetic word to an expectant mother for you and I, but he also said the very place where she'd give birth. She had to travel. Can you imagine? All this was, see God moving it all into place. All these, and he's working behind in men that uh, must go uh, for their taxes and all that. But God was sovereign in all of it. You know, we look at him and say, see this government, and I'm one of them, you know. See this government and this and that and the other and see on behind it all and all the wickedness behind it all. Do you know who's behind all of that? Do you know who's the governor of all the nations? Do you know who's the one who's in charge? Our Heavenly Father. He's in charge. Stay with me and I'll round this up and that's me finished. Micah 5 and 2, But thou Bethlehem Mithrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old to everlasting. In other words, he was with me. Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus came along and says, I am the bread of life. Right from his birth, it's, it's fantastic. Ephrath means fruitful or abundance. Of course, that's what he brought, an abundance of grace. Fruitful in the salvation of souls. All in God's timing. So this is ecclesiastical prophecies. Notice what it says in verse 2. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. God planted a vine. God planted a fig tree. God planted an olive tree, all symbols of Israel. Notice, verse 2, a time to pluck up that which is planted. So he, he plucks up and he plants and he plants and he plucks up, showing the sovereignty of God. So Israel's like an onto a vine. I'm going to read this. We're going to get down to prayer, and I'll start here next week. Israel is like an onto a vine, and this is going to bring us in to deeper prophecy. So don't miss next week. This is going to bring us into deeper prophecy where we're going to see the, the kingdom of Israel forming and separating into kingdoms. And we're going to look at time scales. We're going to look at how the Lord had caused this to happen and what happens after this. I'm going to bring it right in to the parables. I talked about it last year for a bit. I'm going to talk about the parables of the two sons, of the two daughters, of the two sticks. We're going to look at those things way through the scripture. So notice Psalm 80 and verse 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Notice, what's the vine that came out of Egypt? It's Israel, isn't it, from their captivity? Israel is the vine then. We see that. We'll look at it more. So Israel is the vine who God brought out of Egypt. And what did he do? He brought them. He married them in Exodus chapter 19. That's a marriage service. Moses, the officiator, he came down and consummated the marriage on the third day. He says, separate yourselves and consecrate yourselves and get ready because your husband is coming down. God was coming down on the third day to consummate the marriage with them. 
And of course then, they go into sin. And he divorces the house of Israel. It hasn't happened yet, we'll get there. He divorces them, but doesn't divorce the southern kingdom of Judah. But notice, a vine comes out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. God marries Israel and carries them over the threshold of Jordan into the family home, which was Canaan land. Lives with his wife, and his wife commits adultery with other gods and with other peoples. And we're going to look at Solomon in this now. We're only touching on this. This is the introduction to next week. Solomon and then in the kingdoms. We're going to look at how the prophetic utterance came and how they were torn out, torn down. How God says he'd break it down. We'll look at the parables and what the Lord says at the parables about all of this. So notice Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. And you read that when you go home. Notice what it says here in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 3. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Do you know what the Lord did? He took out seven, if I can call it nations, seven peoples from Deuteronomy 7. Took them out. In other words, he pulled the weeds out of the garden. And he brought Israel in, brought his wife into the home. He renovated the home for them. He, he made the home uh, livable for them, cleaned the home up for them. He was with them through the battles of Jericho and, and he pulled all these seven different peoples out and he planted the vine. He planted the vine. How do you know he planted the vine? Well, we've got an week. There's too much. There's too much. We've got an week. Here's a wee tip, but by the time Jesus comes, John 15 and verse 1, I am the true. Why did he say that? Just because it was sounded nice and you can grow grapes out of me, using the grapes or whatever. No. Here's what he's saying. I'm the true, perfect, pure Israelite. When you have all sinned. That's what he's saying to us. Israel were to be a vine. And they sinned. And they even brought forth wild grapes. Scriptures tell us of this. So we'll look next week. We'll look more at the noble vine. We're going to look back into Genesis. uh, Jacob, Israel's prophecy over Judah. We'll look at that, God willing. The Lord spares us all, keeps us all next Wednesday evening. God bless us all. So I hope that was a wee bit different tonight for you.